Welcome back to another episode of Interview You. This is Lewis Shine. And hey, I got a special guest on today. Uh, one of my guys from back from Miami, Ohio, um, that I knew um, that is doing his thing in a lot of ways right now. Uh, but was a football player. And like I mentioned on other episodes, I, I love football players because I loved football. It was my first love. Of course, it chose who. I was always around the football guys at, at, at uh, Miami. And so this was one of the guys that I kind of took a liking to. Um, it was around a little bit. So I just wanted to bring him on and kind of talk a little bit about what he's doing. So without further ado, I want to introduce you guys to my boy, Van Monroe. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, Lou, man. Hey, thanks for having me um, on your show. I appreciate that intro. Uh, it's been a long time coming, man. It's good we can catch up, man. Man, this is great, man. Uh, days of Miami, Ohio were great, man. Uh, <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll, we'll get into those days um, here in a minute. But, man, I know that football was something that dear to you. You was the college football player there, as well as, you know, you dibbled and dabbled in the art. And, and that's probably an understatement because you probably did more than dibble and dabble. But, you know, I just want to kind of ask, you know, uh, we'll go down along the lines of where that started in your life, too. So let's start with football, man. Where did football start for you? Man, football started for me, I would say, uh, <laughs> almost since birth, man. Like, cause <laughs> It was like when I was younger, with my dad being a former athlete, um, I can just remember my earliest memories of him putting um, some type of uh, athletic ball in my hand, whether it was a baseball, basketball, or football. And the household I grew up in, uh, my mother lived with uh, her mother. So my grandmother was actually the biggest football fan in the house. And so I learned the game of football from watching the game with my grandmother. So, so those Sunday afternoons or Monday nights, whenever the game was showing, it'd be me and her next to the television. And I'll be asking her some of the terminologies that she would be yelling out towards the te television, like sack that quarterback. I remember that vividly, like and asking her, like, what is sack that quarterback? <laughs> and she breaking it down for me. And then as I got older, um, I would go outside and start playing. So then I would play with the people in the neighborhood in the streets. And we would have, we would formulate teams. And I remember back in East Cleveland, uh, I, lived, I lived on Nose, and Nose had a football team. Like our street had a football team team that we had organized and we would go play other streets in east cleveland like we would do this at like the um the local middle school which is kirk they had a huge football field wow that's how the love of the game started with me you know with my grandmother and then being a youth out in the streets playing uh playing ball and you know you don't see a lot of that these days a lot of kids are um you know inside more playing more video games you know you know which is cool it has its place but it's nothing like going out there and actually participating in that sport, you know. So it started there and it just progressed to, uh, you know, me knowing that I had athletic gifts and that I was a little bit, you know, faster, stronger, taller than some of the other kids. And then um, having the aspirations of playing in the NFL, you know, which led me to uh, getting a scholarship and, and at Miami. Man, so talk a little bit about that, you know, that that time where, um, you know, of course, playing in high school and just that recruiting period when when Miami came on the radar and, and you made your decision of that's where I'm going. So in high school, um, I, uh, I I had uh, I had a very, very um, 
intense uh, summer leading up to my senior year where I went to a lot of camps. Uh, my uncle uh, is the credit for picking me up, putting me in um, – <laughs> putting me in the truck and, and just driving me all over the state of Ohio, even in Pennsylvania, going to Penn State's camp, uh, Ohio State's camp, um, every camp of uh, school in the MAC, and just trying to showcase my talent. And then going into my senior year, I went to one camp at Miami. And my aunt, my aunt Debbie, um, who has passed away, uh, she, she is an alumni of, well, was alumni of Miami. And so that's all I heard was about how great of a school Miami was and all of the benefits and everything that she had learned and, and just, just the, you know, the prestige of that university. And so like coming onto campus, it wasn't anything um, that was not familiar to me as far as uh, what Miami, Miami university represented, but it was the first time that I was there to actually, you know, witness it. And so like just coming in, you know, seeing all of the brick buildings and just the beautiful aesthetics of that campus, I was just blown away. And then uh, coming into the locker room, um, I just remember, you know, seeing the red carpet, the red uh, lockers, and actually envisioning myself there. Like, it was really weird. It was like I almost, I almost like saw it before I even knew I had an opportunity to be there. Once yeah. I walked in, it felt like home to me. And then mm. I went out there and I performed. So I came down there as a quarterback. I played quarterback and, and uh, corner. Um, and safety um, while I was in, in high school. So I came down there to the camp as a quarterback. And so we had two sessions. We had a morning session and an afternoon session. And uh, I think the morning session, I think I did pretty well. Uh, I threw the ball pretty well. And then we ran our 40s. And I ran one of the fastest 40 times at the camps. And so during like middle break, uh, head coach Terry Hepner, the late great Terry Hepner, uh, came up to me and said, hey, uh, Monroe, how do you feel about switching over the defense for the second half? I said, let's do it. And uh, Coach Mel Tucker, who is now who just got who's just been signed to uh, Michigan State recently, head coach at Michigan State now, but he was the defensive back coach during his time at Miami. He, he brought me over and he said, you know, I'm gonna take you under my wing. And I'm going to coach you up. And just from, the, just from the jump, you know, I could just I could just feel this energy. And I knew that I wanted to just match his intensity to try to, you know, leave a lasting impression on him. So I jumped to the front of the line every time there was a drill. And he was like, oh, you, 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 you really like this. Oh, you really want this. And then when it was time to go one-on-one with the best wide receivers, he called me out the group. He said, Monroe, mm. go get him. And I went out there and I performed. And they put me in front of the best tight end, Monroe, jump on him. And no one caught a pass on me. And so I'm thinking like, okay, you know, um, you know, I showed out pretty well. You know, everything was great. They invited me up uh, later to meet the rest of the coaches. And, you know, I didn't think much of it. I got back to school uh, that, next, that next week. And it just so happens that Coach Mel Tucker was a player under one of my teachers. Huh. Um, uh, one of my one of my art teachers, my drafting teachers, Mr. Eccles, uh, he coached Mel Tucker. And so he said, he said, I came in, I sat down. He said, so Van, I heard everything went well. And I was like, yeah, everything went well. And then he was like, um, you know, congratulations. I'm like, congratulations. He was like, <laughs> yeah, they offered you a scholarship. And I'm like, they did? <laughs> so I found out through 
through my teacher because he had told Coach Tucker had told my teacher, and then Tuck called me later that afternoon to to um to formally you know uh, offer me that scholarship. So I found out that that next my next that next Monday in class, and so I went into the, my senior year with absolutely no pressure of, oh my gosh, you know, if I don't get these numbers, then, you know, this school won't look at me because I've already, I had a scholarship going in. So, you know, I can just go out there and perform and be my, um, you know, be myself. And it's, 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 uh, it's a blessing that I did take that scholarship because the seventh game of the season, I tore my ACL. Mm. And so I didn't, I didn't finish the year, but since I accepted, it was offered that scholarship, uh, you know, Miami um, was there, and they uh, and they and they honored it through my through my injury. And so, you know, I graduated in two thousand year the year two thousand, and then that summer I was in Oxford. Wow, man, that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the man. journey to Oxford, the OX. So, yeah. man, it, you know, it's good to hear your story, man, because um, you know some of it I haven't heard. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing, but then you know just to I like I like for people to hear that recruiting process, man, because it's different for everybody. Uh, right. It also gives encouragement throughout because when you hear others that have been through it and, and maybe how they were how they maneuvered through it, right. it can kind of give you hope, you know. And so um, that's one of the reasons I kind of open this thing up to, to talk to different people about it, so I can give others hope, man. And so, um, man, you're at Oxford now. Um, we were there together, man, and, and yes. my, there were some. I mean, I don't know about all the other times in the history of the school, but I'm willing to bet that when we was there, man, sports was jumping like none other. None other. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> I mean, on the hoop side. Right. Basketball. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, football, hockey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hockey. Yeah, man. Yeah, baseball. Yeah. Uh, the softball, the girls' softball team. Like, everybody – Everybody was excelling during that time, man. It was so it was so great to be an athlete and be associated with um, with that group, you know. Um, like you said, the basketball, you know, Millette Hall was jumping with Juby Johnson and Chet Mason and those guys, man, doing their thing. And then the football team, we was, you know, we was we was, uh, you know, finding our as a lot of our uh, a lot of a lot of our recruits from our class began to start playing, you know, from the Ben Roethlisberger's to you know Terrell Jones. Um, you know, Fonzo Hodge and, you know, go on and on and on, you know, we just started, we started balling, man. And things became, you know, Miami became um, known for uh, sports again. You know, I'm sure, you know, we've had our ups and downs over the years, but Miami is, you know, from primarily and rightfully so, you know, known as an academic school. Yeah. And so now it's like, we are putting them on the map as, you know, a, a powerhouse in football. You know, we yeah. started to get like ESPN night games throughout the week. And Man. You know, I remember like ESPN making fun of our scoreboard or well, people on TV making fun of our scoreboard. This is before <laughs> we had the renovations. Right. You know, yeah. we had the old school scoreboard. Um, you know, I laugh all the time about like just how our equipment was, how our equipment was like inadequate a bit when we got there. Not as far as like our helmets and things like that, but like our, our stuff we wore underneath our <laughs> equipment, like yeah. our travel gear, like our shorts and things like that, you know, and now, you know, we see like, these these um these sponsorship deals with uh they have adidas now um we were with nike um when i was there but just seeing that the uh the renovation of the stadium and the locker room and just so much so much have grew from that era of 
of, of um, us being there. You know, Ben Roethlisberger, who was our quarterback during that time, you know, he donated a lot of money to uh, to renovation of our indoor facility. Um, just being there, you know, before that, it's, it's just like, it's nothing like it, man. You know, the, the scene where we were and then like know that you had a part into what Miami football is today. Yeah, man. And, and you know, I, I joke about it. I was talking to, um, I've had Juwan on here and some yeah. other guys and Turner yeah. Dondé. Man, I, and we were talking about how, man, now ESPN on every campus, but back then right. – Right. For ESPN to show up, that was special. And they was, was on it. our campus. <laughs> that was it, man. That was special. Um, to have them on our campus so that, you know, people back home could see you, you know. Um, and that was big for us. Just know that the whole world, uh, the sports world could watch us play and, and like, hey, look, we got talent here in Oxford. Yeah. You know, you know, we can ball too. You know, we may not be as big as a lot of guys in like the um, the major conferences, but we sure enough was beating them. Um, you know, um, and that, you know, to our 2003 year, we finished 10th in the nation when we won um, our MAC title. And, uh, you know, people forget that, you know, we were 10th in the nation out of Oxford. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only losses to Iowa that year. And I think they were Big Ten champs either that year or the year before. So yeah. we could have, we, we probably could have competed very well in the Big Ten that year as we beat, um, you know, we did our, we did our thing against uh, Northwestern and, you know, just a lot of the uh, the bigger schools, we call those uh, Tomahawk victory, victories, where we come in maybe an underdog or a school that's, uh, you know, has a bigger name than us, and we end up winning. Uh, you know, we have uh, inside the locker room, we have record of all those wins over the years. And just, and just like, being proud to carry on the tradition of the ones that came before us, because we have all those images and those pictures of those people and those players uh, who paved the way inside that locker room. And we always, always live by tradition and being like, hey, yo, we got to live up to to what they uh, to what they set forth for us. Yeah. And so, you know, so that we can be that, you know, that that aiming point for that next generation. But it all starts with us carrying on this tradition. And I mean, we took that seriously, man, like everything, like everything we did was like based off of, you know, the previous guys that was there, they taught us about like, you know, some inside stuff about like not walking on the M, which is inside the locker room on the floor, like the carpet area, yeah. you know, uh, you know, in certain sections of the locker room was called the ghetto. I actually was in the ghetto part of the locker room, <laughs> and not allowing other players on your team to walk into the ghetto without getting a pass, like little silly stuff like that just made us a tighter, <laughs> closer unit. You know what I mean? And then that I think was, um, uh, translated to the field, and you saw it in the way we played. Man, it's amazing stuff, man. Man, talk a little bit about this because I, I know you were part of um, some great teams there. And, and, you know, the one thing I love is that so many guys there, – there's a lot of guys that went on, played in the league, which we know right. who they are. But there's guys there, man, that – man, if they was a couple inches taller, they could have been yeah. in the league. or But they, yeah. they were high contributors. And then you yourself, yeah. you were a part of it. Right. Just talk a little bit about that and just how special it was just for you to be a part of that brotherhood and that culture, man. Yeah, man, it was a lot of a lot of players who you would say, like, man, just a little bit taller, maybe a split second faster, and they would have been, um, you know, uh, not only players in the NFL, but stars in the NFL. Um, you know, we had our own ver version of Troy Palomalu and Matt Pusateri. Yeah. You know, Matt Pusateri <laughs> played safety for us, and Matt was like, an ultimate gamer. Uh, me and Martin Ans, 
we 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 talked about that recently. It was like you see Poos on the street and you won't think that he's a football player. But when yeah. he put on his helmet and his shoulder pads, I mean he's one of the the baddest, nastiest safeties you ever met in your life, you know. Man. And even when he tests, you know, he run, he's not gonna run as fast as a lot of guys, but he steps on the field and he's just as fast as anybody. Like he just he's running around like with his hair on fire, is how what they say. You know, <laughs> so yeah, there's so many players like that. And I think Miami um coaching staff and recruiting staff did a great job of finding these type of players throughout like our region, throughout the state. I mean, throughout the country, really, you know, people came from all over. We had people from Florida, uh, Missouri, of course, uh, you know, um, Ohio, uh, Michigan. And we found a great nucleus of guys who who some of us, you know, coming in, you know, were, you know, that top star, you know, four or five star athletes. Some of us wasn't. Some of us was under the radar a little bit, but could play. And they identify with that. And I think um, even even inside of the unit, of that football team, um, there was this competitive nature, even if you didn't start, that you wanted to, every time you stepped on that football field, you wanted to prove yourself, not only to your uh, your, your, your fellow uh, teammates, but to, to your coaches um, and to, you know, and to your family that, you know, hey, I belong here. And so one of the, one of the fondest memories that uh, I, I can recall is being a younger player and being on bus two. Now bus two, <laughs> was the bus of the players who weren't starters, right? And so that was the angriest, most aggressive bus between the two because the starters, you know, they had two seats to themselves, you know, they could stretch out. Bus two, we weren't, we didn't have that luxury. You know, we had to sit, you know, next to someone on these trips. And we were just, you know, special team players, second unit players. But oh my goodness, the fun and the, uh, the banter we had on those buses, <laughs> yeah, know, it really it really brought us together. And I think the success in our team uh, was was in the heart of those second unit players and those special team units. Like if you if you had to go back and look at a lot of our highlight films, we we did some things on the special teams that would have gotten us like ejected from today's football. Like they <laughs> they changed like the rules where you can't ear hole somebody, you can't hit nobody from the blind side. You can't like leave your feet to hit people. We we were decleating folks, Lou. I'm telling you, like we were. I mean, these were legal hits then. You know, football has changed a lot. You know, we weren't doing anything illegal, but we were taking our frustration out on them cats. They thought they were showing up for a football game. No, they was coming to a fight because in Man. our mind, we're supposed to be starters, and we're not taking it out on our brother who was before us, who started ahead of us. You know, we don't have no animosity towards him, but we like, man, look, we got to show that we can play. And any right. moment we get a chance to play, we're going to go out there and we're going to knock you out your socks. You know, we yeah. didn't care what was going on. Man, we had so many moments. Like, if you ask any of the starters, they said the most fun uh, moment of the uh, the game is after, you know, we would score a touchdown and that kickoff when we punt. They said everybody get up and they watch our special teams because we were taking out our frustration on anybody who had opposite jersey, opposite helmet than us. And it just, I don't know, it just formed, it just, it just helped us like come closer together, you know, yeah. sometimes that, 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 um, that can drive a, a divide or a wedge between the team. Cause yeah. you start having jealousy towards the other player. Like, Oh no, I'm better than him. I'm better than him. And we didn't have much of that. You know, we wanted, we wanted us to, to win, you know, of course we wanted to play, but mm -hmm. we loved that dude. Like that was our brother, you know, he just happened to be, you know, uh, you know, the, the guy who was chosen to be starter. 
or you know, even when I was the one that was started, you know, they I just happened. I wasn't that I was that much better than the person behind me, or that the person in front of me was that much better than me. It just you know how it was during that time. So we didn't have anything towards him, but we definitely, Man. we definitely, we definitely carried, still carried that competitive edge. And like I said, that bus two was vicious, man. You want to talk about some mean heart, some jokes on after games on the way back from games? Oh boy, like <laughs> so, yeah. It, it, it was it was a lot going on, but definitely a lot of talent, man, throughout that team from front to back. Yeah, man, that's great stuff, man. Now, you know, I I came to the knowledge that you you were an art guy. Uh, my roommate, one of my best friends, Andy Dooley. Yeah. Uh, he used to draw, and so for right. somehow, somehow through him, I found out you drew too. So I okay. think one of the first pieces that I seen that you drew was when you drew that album cover of uh, Coach, Coach D, D on D. top of Millet. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you know I probably, so, to, I probably got into so much trouble off of that man. That album cover, I, I, Coach D. Was man, crazy. let me tell you, we uh, laugh uh, about that to this day. Oh, and so I'm like, okay, he's doing that. He can, he could draw. Yeah, <laughs> draw. yeah. Where where did your love for art did that start back in high school, or was that something that kind of happened in love college? Arts, I, again, I'm gonna go back to when I was born, man. I I didn't recognize it till I was probably two years old. Um, and I used to go around my mother's house, and I would draw these little bubble crosses on the tables, on the walls, just everywhere in the house. And my mother would say that I would. You know, at the drawing, it would say pains, P-A-N-E-S, pains, pains. And she was like, you know, nobody ever knew what you were talking about. You know, you would say pains, pains, pains. And then she said one day we were outside walking around and the airplane flew over our head. And I started yelling pain, pain, pain. And she looked up and she saw the bubble cross, which was the airplane from the ground view up, you know, that I was drawing. And she was like, wow, my two-year-old is drawing airplanes. Like, he's not drawing, like, the neighbor's dog or the cat or something like that. But that is that is on eye level to him. He's drawing something that's, you know, hundreds of thousands of feet in the air. Yeah. And she was like, wow, I think he's going to be an artist. And she did everything she could to foster that spirit in me. You that's know, good. I remember there was times where, you know, we didn't have much money and she would save up to buy me an artist table so that I can sit at the table and and perfect my craft and like she was real big on me practicing my my art and practicing whatever it is I wanted to do whether it was football like she didn't want me to stay inside the house and watch football all the time she would say if you if you striving to be a football player you won't get there just by watching it you got to go out there and actually do it so she was real big on me applying my my talent to whatever my purpose was or whatever my dream was and you know that that also pertains to to art as well. So uh, she bought me you know, a lot of paper and just very encouraging um, throughout my upbringing um, to, uh, you know, that I was going to one day be an artist one day. And, you know, here I am. Man. So going to college, um, you know, I know you was doing a lot of it then. Kind of talk about your experience there and just how you, how you just continue to hone your craft. Yeah. So, um, you know, I could take it a step back. Um, before I got to college, I won a few awards in high school. I won the Governor's Award. I won the Gold and Silver Key uh, from the Cleveland Institute of Art. They had an art contest. So I was being recognized for my, my gift, but I was listening to a lot of naysayers that told me that I couldn't be a successful artist of my generation uh, while I was living, that a lot of artists aren't recognized or acknowledged or celebrated until they have passed on. And they, a lot of people 
to try to prevent me from going down this um, this endless pit of despair and would say, you don't want to be a starving artist. So you need to probably pick another profession or, you know, just have art as a hobby. And I started to really listen to them. So going into Miami, uh, I did have a major in graphic design, but I did I didn't really see a future for myself in, in the arts, to be honest with you. Like, I, I really thought that I was going to either do something in business or, you know, be in the NFL someday. Um, it wasn't until, uh, you know, through football, I got injured a couple of times and, you know, I ended up becoming a, um, a student coach. And then and during school, I lost I lost the love or I lost uh, a passion to to learn graphic design. Graphic design back then was a lot different than how it is now. You know, we use all computerized everything. Now, back then, we was doing stuff by hand. You know, we was drawing out letters and stuff like that. I was like, oh, this, <laughs> yeah. ain't, this ain't what I want to do. Like, hold on now. <laughs> I can't get jiggy with this, right? This ain't right. This ain't really my flavor, right? So I really didn't know what was going to happen. And it wasn't until, um, you know, about 2003, where one of my teammates, uh, Brian Tyson, he mm-hmm. bought me a pair of uh, old beat up tennis shoes. Now, at the time, I was airbrushing T-shirts. <clears throat> I had taken a liking to airbrush, and I thought that you know I was going to open up a business that someday airbrushing T-shirts, not knowing that the airbrush industry was on its way out. When I bought my machine, like I bought my machine like the year all this stuff started to go down, right? So I'm like, yeah. Man, you know what? <laughs> so he brought me a pair of tennis shoes, and he said. I know you do the shirts and all that and all that's cool, but can you paint these shoes black? You know, cause I can't afford to go buy a new pair. And I kind of looked at him like he was crazy. I'm like, what do you mean paint them black? What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> like, yeah, paint them black. I'm like, you don't want a shirt. He was like, nah, can you paint these shoes black? And so here was a, um, here was an opportunity that was disguised as an obstacle or a challenge. Right. Cause I've never done it before. It was something yeah. that was foreign to me and I could have ignored it you know, or I could have, you know, took it on. So obviously I took it on and I, you know, I painted his shoes black and white, sent it to him, very basic colorway. And then I became the guy amongst the team and on and my quad that you bring your old beat up pair of tennis shoes and for 30 bucks, I would refurbish them with a fresh coat of paint. Mm. You know, that's what I, that was my little hustle. So here I am being the <laughs> entrepreneur businessman. I always thought I was going to be, but then also using my, my gift, my natural gift as an artist. Yeah. And, um, and I still didn't see, like, okay, that I would make a name for myself one day painting on shoes. This was just something I was doing to have gas money to go back to Cleveland. You know, I wasn't right. really thinking that far <laughs> in advance. It was really no, it was no model in front of me of how to succeed, how to succeed as a customizer. Yeah. I come to find out I'm, I'm one of the pioneers of this whole thing. I didn't know that at the time. Wow. You know, I was thinking that, yeah, you know, I didn't know that. So... That in Miami, that's what my art experience was. It was, you know, going to, uh, as far as my art classes, you know, I found success in a lot of my drawing classes, my drafting classes, uh, some of my 2D, 3D um, uh, classes. But then again, you know, once I got into the graphic design program, just being discouraged because I'm like, you know, I can't really exhibit my true gift by doing this. You know, I need to uh i need to have uh the parameters lifted off of me to to be able to really soar through this creative space and in graphic design you know and rightfully so there's a lot of like uh you know a lot of parameters and you know and and um specs you have to stay within to match whatever the project is calling for you to do 
And I'm just like, man, you know, this is this really isn't me. Um, and just just really like being almost lost in that journey um, and not knowing that I was sitting on literally sitting on what would make me known and what would make me, um, you know, become uh, recognized uh, in, in museums one day as being an artist. It was me painting on those shoes. You know, I'm sitting wow. there trying to figure out and it was right underneath my nose. Like, what am I going to do? You know, praying at night. Like, what am I going to do? I don't even know, you know, where I can find myself in this art world while I'm, while I'm sitting there painting a pair of tennis shoes, right? <laughs> wow. So that, that was my experience at Miami. Man, so, man, I, I can remember those days, man. I mean, we all had little side hustles. I think you cut some hair, yeah, too. I think I cut hair. Yeah, we was barbering. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the hustle, so, man. In them little kitchenettes, man, you know, cutting yeah. hair. Yeah, man. And I think for me, man, what Miami the most and the people I've met, I met some pretty special people, man. You know, we just had some special dudes there, man. Right. And, you know, with talent, you know, such as yourself and other guys that, you know, outside of maybe an injury here or there, could have been in the NFL. That's you know, but, but now, you know, someone like yourself, injuries, but then you have a gift right. that you're working unknowingly, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and then you work this thing. So now that grit that you put on the field that you wanted to take to the NFL, you know, with injuries and things started to change directions, you began to um, start to put that effort and that grit into these shoes. Now, talk to us a little bit about how things started to progress in that area after leaving Miami. Um, so when it came to the shoes, um, I still like I I graduated from Miami. I went into uh, went into corporate America. I started to work for uh, Sherwin Williams. I was a market manager there, and um, I would go to my basement at night and uh, would paint tennis shoes and not know why I was so drawn to this new form, this new canvas. And I would. Um, I would find myself looking for different designs that I was painting on t-shirts and transferring them to the tennis shoes. And then, you know, just post them on social media. Uh, I had a MySpace page at the time. And so that's <laughs> yeah, really taking it back. Right. Yeah. So I had a MySpace yeah. joint and um, I, uh, I would post them on it and I would start to get people interested in my work. And I remember, like, the first celebrity I think I made a pair of tennis shoes for, I want to say was, uh, might have been Slim Thug, to be honest with you, man. Rapper Slim Thug out of Houston. And that was just from, from MySpace. And me um, reaching out to his MySpace page, and I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know who's running his page, but, you know, I, I paint shoes, you know, and... Uh, I got a good idea for this new album that's coming out. If I could, you know, transfer uh, the uh, the theme or the vibe of the cover of this album to a tennis shoe, you know, I think it'd be a good marketing tool for him. And it was his nephew that was running the page. And he was like, oh, yeah, that'd be great, man. You know, this is his size. You know, this is where to send them. And, you know, as soon as we get them, you know, we'll take a picture and we'll post it. And so I'm just like excited. I'm like, oh my gosh, like they responded. Oh my goodness, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so I got the shoes, painted them. You know, it was some black and blue. Uh, and it had like some wood grain on it. I think he was talking a lot about his El Dorado that he had. He had the wood grain steering wheel. 
And so I incorporated a lot of those elements into the sneaker. And um and yeah, man. And so I sent that off uh to him and he posted it. And you know, you couldn't tell me nothing at that time. And I was just like, oh man, I thought that was it. <laughs> like that was that was all that happened to me, I'd have been good. I'm like, man, that's great, man. Slim Doug wore my shoes. Man, like it 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 I can't even explain the the um I can't even accurately explain that that feeling because you know, you go your whole life being a consumer of tennis shoes, you know, and now you had an opportunity to make your own tennis shoe. And and now someone has accepted what you made and to the point where they're wearing it and they're posting it on their social media uh, accounts. And it's like, wow. Uh, when I think about customization just in general, you think about where we start. We start where the big manufacturer's process ends. They deem that shoe finished once they ship it to the retailer and you buy it in the store. You buy that store, you buy that shoe as a finished product. That is where our process begins. So they didn't even see past that finished product. And now we're taking it to elevating it to a whole new level of creativity, um, which we can get into how they began to now take from our industry of customization you know later on once they figured out you know what we were doing and how we were doing it and how we were relating to our our customer base so you know it went from there and then it got to the point where um you know i was working and then i, I changed jobs to, to kind of chase money at that point because i saw some people that i went to miami with that was making more money was working at a place down the road for me and i was like man i need to work there and making money so i was kind of looking at the grass being green on the other side of the street Versus like really focusing on me. And I went there and then I made a lot of money, but I kind of got away from the art because it just was so time consuming of, uh, of a profession. And, and this was like uh, September, around September of 2007. Um, you know, I came to my desk one day and I couldn't focus on my work. And it was almost like I had a burning bush moment. And you think about, you know, in the Bible, uh, Moses in the book of Exodus, I had a burning bush moment where, like, I, I felt I felt God speak to me. And and he said, you know, why are you spending all this time doing something that I didn't create you to do? You know, I made mm. an artist. And here you are Ooh. chasing money, chasing other people's passion, chasing other people's gifts. Like, you're an artist. Like, be an artist. And, like, it really struck me to my core. Like, it, it just, like, it, it, like, I was just, like... I couldn't believe it because it was like it, it, it spoke so much truth into everything I was to my whole existence since I was two years old. I knew I was made to be an artist and I got away from it listening to other people. I got away from it to be comfortable. I got away from it to be able to buy, you know, fancy things. And and all of that stuff would have kept me away from my true purpose. All of those things would have kept me out of the Smithsonian Museum. And I didn't know this at the time. I didn't know that was behind the door, the, you know, the, the unknown door of when you step out and do things and you follow your passion. But I went through that whole week of trying to just trying to figure out, you know, what I'm going to do. And then I finally decided to go speak to my manager. I said, you know, I can't focus on this stuff anymore. I got to go out and do what I was called to do. And that was to be an artist. And he kind of looked at me like I was crazy. He said, you can make, you know, six figures working here and then you know i was like yeah i understand that 
And then I, I respectfully told him, I respectfully told him that, you know, I didn't come here for like your approval. <laughs> I just want to let you know that what's going to happen. You know, <laughs> I'm not trying to get you to prove what I'm about to do. I'm out. So you know, <laughs> I left. And, you know, I would love to say that everything went, you know, great. And, you know, everything was <laughs> peachy after that. But I think I hit like the hardest wall of adversity that I've ever faced in my life after that moment. Because like everything that I had lined up for me to succeed as an artist, as far as like opportunities, they all fell. To the they 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 all like <laughs> like so I had I had an opportunity to go paint murals inside of a, a hotel, and when I showed up to, to the job site, the manager told me that the hotel manager decided the hotel owner decided to go with wallpaper instead of doing the mural. So this was a fifteen thousand dollar project that now. Mm-hmm. I have zero, you know, so I've already calculated like what I'm gonna do with that money <laughs> as far as, you know, bills and things that I would pay for. And then I had another opportunity to work with Deion Sanders because they had caught wind of my work through, uh, through MySpace. And um, they opened up a shop in, in Dallas and they wanted me to fulfill a certain segment of the shop with my custom tennis shoes. And so, um, when it came time for me, when I left my job to come call him and say, Hey, look, I'm ready. I'm finally ready to do this. The guy hit me up, uh, who was his manager and said, Oh, Dion, um, just went to LA. I think he's going to accept this uh, role or not a role. He's going to accept this opportunity for a reality show and they're going to put the, the shop on hold. And so, you know, we can't, we can't do anything with you now, you know? And I'm just like, Oh my goodness. So, mm. so, the, so what I did was like, I bought a camera, I had some savings, so I bought a camera, and then I just recorded myself um, operating in my gift as a customizer. And that video is actually still on YouTube. It's called The Emancipation of Van Taylor Monroe. <laughs> and I, I made that in that week or two after I, I, I left my job. And when my, um, um, you know, my other opportunities fell through the cracks. And so I was just, like, starting from scratch. The world didn't know me as an artist. They knew me as, you know, the account executive or the market manager or even a football player. And I was trying to introduce myself, reintroduce myself to the world as an artist. So I went broke from 2007 all the way to 2000, the beginning of 2008. And then the beginning of 2008, I got eviction notice on my door. So here I am about to be kicked out of my place, pursuing my passion with a degree from Miami, right? This don't even go together, right? I just graduated <laughs> yeah, a couple years ago and I'm about to be homeless. And wow. I was like, I was like, I had, I had nights where I cried myself to sleep. I had days where I went to the grocery store with $7 in my pocket that had to last the entire week, you know, and if anybody want to know how seven, $8 can last a whole week, you can hit me up uh, at Bam on Instagram. I can definitely break that down to you. If you think I'm playing, I know it to the sense. All right. <laughs> I'll make that stretch because I lived it. And so I was uh January, January 2008, I was, I was, you know, facing eviction and I started to get inspired by, um, by a senator that was running for president with a funny name out of Chicago named Barack Obama. Um, you know, he was an underdog in the race that year. And I was just, just, I don't know. I mean, I was just inspired by his spirit, inspired by his journey. Um, you know, his, his ambition to be, you know, president and then how no one thought that it could be him, you know, and I looked at myself and like, well, if he can make it this far, I can be a successful artist of my generation. And then uh, and then it was actually a guy out of Cincinnati 
who helped me through my eviction, he, he ordered like nine or 10 pairs of tennis shoes and I was able to pay my eviction off. And that was the night where I got like first time I got rest. I went to sleep every night, but I didn't get rest because my mind was just racing, figuring out like what my next meal going to be. I'm going to be kicked out of my place or whatever the case may be. And I painted a Barack Obama tennis shoe in that moment. I woke up, I painted that shoe, and I went and posted it on MySpace, my MySpace page. And brother, I tell you, like it went viral before like we even knew what viral was. And like from there, you know, <laughs> that's when the journey really kicked off man, as far as being mm. recognized for my talent. But it almost didn't happen because I could have quit in those moments prior to me painting those shoes, you know, feeling sorry for myself or just not trusting God, not trusting what he instilled in me and what he told me at my desk in September. You know, I could have been like, you, you, know, you spoke to me and then I went through all that adversity, you know. Because at that moment, you're thinking, did I hear it wrong? Was was it not God speaking to me? You know, and then, you know, I I could have I could have given up. You know, when I think about it, I get choked up. You know, like I almost start to my eyes almost start to water because I could have quit, went back to corporate America, went back to my job, made six figures, you know, had a big old house and, you know, and would have never found like my never, never have taken that journey of finding my true passion and getting the most out of my ability that was given to me by the most high. So, yeah, man. So that's how I got to the Obama shoe, man. <laughs> man, bro. Like, we need to call this episode Drop the Mic. This is a whole bunch of Drop the Mic moments here, man. And, uh, man, I know you got millions of things you could tell us, too, man. Each more stories. Um, you know, I, I talk about this one a little bit, and we'll begin to wind it down, like, I, I started seeing, you know, I definitely saw that. Didn't know the backstory, of course, but, you know, I was like, oh, Van doing his thing, you know, just click like, you know what I mean? I never talked to you about these things. So that's why this is blessing me, man. Right. Um, but, you know, I saw you worked with the likes of Spike Lee, Jordan Brand, Smithsonian right. Museum, where your stuff is there. Like, just talk about some of your highlights, man, that uh, you're proud of. And even you could throw one in there that may have not been the most public or you didn't even put it out there, but it touched you. You know, just share with us a few of those things, bro. Yeah, so a couple of those, man, I would say, you know, working with 20th Century Fox right afterwards, because uh, everybody uh, saw the the momentum that the Obama shoe created. You know, that was before everybody was putting Obama's face and stuff on shirts and hats and things like that. You know, that was before all of that. They saw that, and then they look at people saw an opportunity to make money themselves, and so they was like, oh, let's put them on the scarf, let's put them on a hairbrush, just put them on a wave cap. You know, it was just every little thing you can think of. They put a mama on, and yeah. And so, 20th Century Fox saw that, and they contacted me to help promote films with tennis shoes. And this was the first time that a customizer was used to to promote a major blockbuster film. You know, they they were spending like you know millions of dollars in advertisement, and now they're like looking in other ways, creative ways of getting exposure to to their um to their films so that was one of the big highlights and um one of the things i'm like really really proud of uh i think another one uh was going out to africa um the way i was contacted to for that for that project was from you know again their president their incumbent president looking to get a shoe made 
because he wanted to do very similar to what happened with the Obama shoot here in the U.S. Now, um, the U.S. Embassy uh, stepped in, and it was just so funny that we're talking about, like, these days, we're talking about, like, Trump and Russia and interference into elections, because what they said then, a long time ago, they were like, as an outside entity, I can't interfere with their elections in, in the Congo. So they thought they saw like me making a shoot for the president and the president getting that shoot manufactured and distributed amongst his uh, supporters was me influencing an election. So they shut that project down, but still brought me into the country to do a workshop at their local uh, art university, um, the Art Academy, Academy de Beaux-Arts. And I taught artists in Africa how to paint on tennis shoes. Wow. and then it was, a, it was a moment inside of one of those classrooms that I think will stick with me forever. And I don't know if there is uh, a bigger or more impactful moment um, that I can remember is when I sat there and we, I, I had to work with a translator when I was there. But some of the, some of the, the students there could speak a little English. And I was, I was given the instructions of how we were going to start the workshop. And there was a kid sitting in the back of the room and he had the most puzzled look on his face. And I thought he just wasn't understanding, you know, the process. And so I walked with the translator over to the kid and I said, hey, you know, is everything okay? Everything's good. And he didn't respond. Um, And then then he pulled a magazine out of his book bag and he went to a page and you can tell he knew exactly what the page was. And he'd been looking at this page, you know, for quite some time. And he said, is this you? And brother, I was in this magazine that he had wow. in his bike book pack in Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He didn't know that I was going to be in his classroom that day. I didn't know he was going to come there with that magazine. And so we had a moment at that point, like, wow. Yeah, that's me. He's like, wow. Like, I've been reading about you. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, I'm like, how I'm, I'm thinking, okay, and I just go back to those moments of despair when I didn't have any money, when I didn't know what my future would hold, if I heard wrong when I was told, you know, that I was an artist. I goes back to those moments and was like, wow, that all of the pain, everything that I went through, was all worthwhile, right? Because here we are in Kinshasa, in an academy with artists in the language, speaking a language that I, you know, and they, this kid has a book and he's been reading about me. He's, you know, maybe inspired by my journey, by my story. And so, you know, I, I go, I say all that to say, like, you never know, like, how, how wide your influence can spread when you start pursuing what you was called to do. Whatever, you know, no matter what it is. You know, who would have thought that somebody painting a shoe could be in the Smithsonian Museum in the African American right. History Museum from painting on a tennis shoe, you know, from Brian Tyson bringing me that shoe in, in my dorm room and he said, can you paint this shoe black to white? Now my shoes sit inside of the largest museum in the world, African American History Museum, and take this out, Lou. It's the first exhibit in the whole museum. So everybody who goes to the museum has walked by my exhibit because it sits there first. Wow. Which I don't believe I deserve, but <laughs> they put me there for uh, for some for whatever reason, and I'm in there with with artifacts from Harriet Tubman, you know, um, 
artifacts from Martin Luther King. Uh, Marcus Garvey's hat is in there. Just everything that, you know, everything from our ancestors who paved the way for me to be, to have the opportunity to do the things that I do today. I sit under the same roof as them. So as long as this world is here, the people will be able to go in there and say that it was an artist named Van Monroe at some point, And he painted on tennis shoes, you know, and this was all because of, I decided to follow my passion and not listen to the naysayers and not be afraid to fail, you know? So, bro. Man, bro, (laughs) this is a, this is very powerful, man. And, you know, it's definitely a message that, that transcends like genres. Like it could be football, it could be art, it could be, whatever your passion is. And I'm right. glad that that's the way you mentioned that thing, um, especially with your testimony, man, of listening to what the Lord told you to do, man. man that's follow starts, that man. because The world can have so much pressure on us and responsibilities, and, right. you know, um, to follow in the Joneses or whatever, but, right. and it can get so loud to where you're not really hearing the voice of the Lord and what he's telling you to do, because he know that's your wealthy place. He know that's yeah. where, he called you to be, and uh, exactly. man, it's so powerful that you did that, man. So I, I, I appreciate you telling that story. And um, man, as we as we uh, get out of here, man, you you dropped a lot of nuggets in what you were saying. But if you can leave something, because you know you got athletes watching, listening, you have non-athletes, man, the common person. What's something that you can leave with anybody that's listening, man, that can fuel them as they go for it to pursue the passion that's in their heart. Right. So I would say, um, you know, when I, when I speak to people and they ask that very same question, I would say, you know, whatever it is you find when you take that journey, that step to find that passion, to find what it is you was created to be, find what it is the Lord has called you to be. You follow it just like you follow that GPS system on your phone or in your car. It seems like we're more obedient to that than we are to the Lord who created us. We are obedient to that little voice that tell us, turn left, turn right, go here, go here to follow, to follow us or to lead us to our destination. I say you follow that passion, that voice that's inside of you first. The voice that the Lord puts inside you when you, when you um, are confused or you're unsure of, of where it is you're supposed to go. And then not only having faith in that, but also putting putting your works into motion. I tell people it's called hand-eye coordination. You know, we talk about sports. In order to catch a football, you got to have hand-eye coordination. You got to line your hands up with your vision. In order for you to fully get the most out of what you were called to do, you have to line up what you is, what, you, what your vision is with your works. I should be able to follow you for a whole week. And know what it is that you were made to do or that you're striving to be by your actions, by your practices. They should be able to see it in what you do, not from what they hear come out your mouth. So follow your heart, hand-eye coordination, and don't be afraid to step outside of your comfort zone. In order for you to get the full potential out of what it is that you were called to do, you're going to have to stretch out of your comfort zone. And we're talking about athletics, right? Before every game, what we do, before every practice, what we do, we stretch to get the most out of our muscles that are in our body, right? It doesn't, like, make you, you know, superhuman, 
but it does make you run to your potential, jump to your potential that you probably can't do if you don't. And then stretching is a little uncomfortable at first, right? You put your leg yeah. out, you're like, ah, man, it's a little tight. I don't ever want to do this. But the longer you, you lean it there, you started to start to relax a little bit and you start to loosen up. But it's so needed. And whatever it is that you're, you're deciding to do, you have to get away from your comfort zone. Get away from your comfort zone. And then once you're doing all those things, what I would tell you is don't quit. Now, you may change your mind on things, but don't ever, ever just quit and say, you know what, I'm done. You know, I don't want to pursue or I don't want to uh, walk in whatever my calling is. Because you never know who and what is uh, lying behind that door of uncertainty. You know, you may be, you know, you may be setting the, the um, you may be setting the pathway for somebody to come behind you and your family, a child or whoever. Or you may be doing it for yourself. You may be inspiring a kid in the Congo in Africa. And he's going to grow up to be something, you know, amazing in his community. You never know how wide your influence may spread. So don't ever, ever, ever quit on whatever you were called to do. That's it, man. Man, powerful stuff, bro, man. And you walked it out, man. You walked that thing out. So I know it's power in me listening to this because Fact that you walked it out, man. Yeah. You're sharing something that you've been through, man. Right. So, man, I so appreciate, man. Uh, wow, this has been amazing, man. Appreciate you taking time out today uh, to uh, share your story, bro, man. I appreciate you letting me interview you, man. Hey, not a problem. I really appreciate the platform. I appreciate everything that you're doing, Lou, man. I mean, this is this is like this is a blessing to me, man. Because like, I'll be honest with you, man. I had I've had like a rough week, a rough couple weeks, man. Matter of fact, I had a rough month. I'll be honest with myself. You know what I mean? But I'm not, <laughs> yeah. bad. I'm not feeling sorry for myself. It's just part of the growth and part of adversity. I think I think the Lord is pushing me into a new realm of creativity. Um, again, getting out of the comfort zone of what I've been in the past, you know, 17 years. And I'm actually, you know, venturing into like film and writing. And it's just like, I don't know, like I'm just hitting some, some walls of uh, adversity and just having this moment today to talk about the things that, um, you know, brought me to this moment. You know, I think it's a blessing to me. Like it speaks to my soul. It spoke to uh, just what I went through, and it just reminded me. It reminded me of where I was then, how I got to be where I am now, which will help me in this moment now <laughs> to know that there is yeah. something behind the door. So when I'm talking to y'all, I'm actually talking to myself too in this moment because I've had a rough month <laughs> trying to transition no, into this new creative space. And so you give me this platform to not only be interviewed, but just you know, speak not only to your audience, but speak back into myself as I hear myself speak, you know, I think it's been a total blessing. So I appreciate it. Man, that's great. Man, man and, uh, you know, like I mentioned before, congratulations Thank on you. your new ordeals, man. And, uh, you know, um, where can, you know, the listeners find you on social media if they just want to check you out and check out what you do? Well, you know, you can find me on all platforms, just at Van Monroe, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. My website is www.vanmonroe.com. Dot com. You just type in Van Monroe, you're gonna run by me somewhere. So <laughs> Van Monroe, keep it easy. Yep. That's how you find me. Yeah. You still got that MySpace page? No, but you know what? I've been looking for my MySpace, but if you ever get a chance to get on MySpace, it's Van 20 on MySpace. Check that out. Van 20. That was my joke. Oh, Before my I had God. a web page, I was sending everybody to my MySpace page, Van 20. <laughs> I was posting all kinds of shoes. I was doing my thing, man, before I even knew it was a thing to do. 
And, um, you know, before it was, before it was uh, popular, before the NFL accepted it, before the world accepted it, you know, we were doing it on MySpace. So that will always have a special place in my heart. Oh, man, that's great stuff, man. I appreciate you, man. Appreciate your time. Much love, bro. And uh, we'll stay connected for sure, man. Yeah, man, for sure, man. I appreciate it. No problem. Hey, everybody, that was Van Monroe, man, doing his thing, man. Great guy, man. I'm so glad I, I crossed paths with him, man. And hope you guys got some out of this episode. Uh, make sure you visit my website at lewisshine.com. That's lewisshine.com um, to connect with my podcast page. Um, all you got to do is click on podcast there as well as on Instagram and Twitter. You can search at interview you pod. That's at interview you pod. And also we do have the um, podcast on my YouTube page now at Lewis Shine. So check it out there. Um, share it with somebody. Make sure you rate it and leave a comment. But until next time, this is Interview You. We'll see you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.